1: Five, four, three, two, one. But who's counting, right? And his name is Major. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major,
2: fantastic. It's the
1: takeout. This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington
3: correspondent.
1: Major Garrett, yes, CBS, yes, hi. Hi.
3: Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better.
1: Is Major out of the doghouse? <laughs> the answer is yes.
2: Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett. Welcome to the Takeout. Fantastic show for you this week. We have one of America's great, possibly greatest documentary filmmaker, Ken Burns, on the show. But before I introduce Ken formally, let me just let you know a little bit about where we are and how we're doing the show. For the CBSN audience, I'm coming to you from the Grand Hyatt Hotel in Sacramento, California. I've been out here on the West Coast covering the California recall election. And I've been up on this day since 2 a.m. West Coast time. I'm heavily sleep deprived. So if it looks like my eyes are a little tired and my voice trails off, I can only blame sleep deprivation. Um. But we do the show, no matter where we are, no matter what conditions we live under, the show is always original every single week, and I am so grateful to have Ken Burns with us. And the reason we have Ken Burns with us is in addition to things you are already familiar with, baseball, the Civil War, country music, the Vietnam War, and other amazing things he's done, he has a new film out about Muhammad Ali the greatest athlete of the 20th century. Not my words, the words of Sports Illustrated. And trust me, Sports Illustrated knows what it's talking about. Ken, it's great to have you with us.
3: Major, thanks so much for having me. I have to start off and say that I'm going to be employing the uh, plural pr- pronoun we a lot, and that's not pretentious. It's because it's co-directed by my oldest daughter, Sarah Burns, and her husband, David McMahon, and the two of them wrote the script. And so uh, in some ways, is, it, it is in every way as much theirs as it is mine.
2: And walk my audience through that process, Ken. Uh, you are obviously so well-known, but you need a massive team to do this work. And obviously on a film of this scope and all its many dimensions, and there are so many layers to the Muhammad Ali story, I will tell people, if you think you know it, trust me, you don't. You just can't know everything about it.
3: That's so kind of you to say that, uh, Major. You know, um, there are hundreds of people thanked in our credits, and, and deservedly so, but every film that we do is sort of handmade by about 15 or 20 people, the nucleus of the producing, directing, editing team, and those are our hunter-gatherers, just a couple of people, those are the editors, f- of four of them in this case, assistants, editors, myself, Sarah David, and our other fourth producer, Stephanie Jenkins, um, it's it's intimate because we take a long time to do it. You know, we work on PBS, and so this is a seven-year labor of love. And and what we wanted to do, there are many, as you know, there are many documentaries about about Muhammad Ali, and a few of them are really extraordinarily great documentaries, among the best documentaries made. So that begs the question, why to do him? And we. We just felt that most of them were about a single fight. Most of them were about um, a couple of years or a particular fight with the United States government. We wanted to do soup to nuts. From his birth and boyhood, in Jim Crow segregated Louisville, Kentucky, to his death only five years ago from Parkinson's disease just outside of of Phoenix. And we wanted to cover, you know, the boxing, of course, that was his job, and the collected fights that we show, all of the the major ones, 25 or so of the major ones, are like the collected works of William Shakespeare. You cannot believe the interior dramas of what's going on in those. So we wanted to illuminate that. But we also wanted to follow the personal dynamic, what the childhood was like who the parents were the brother what growing up in a segregated city but in a in a comfortable lower middle class safe um west end uh, a black community on grand avenue is where his house was uh, the wives the children all of that but but mainly we also wanted to take this as a spiritual journey our hero's spiritual journey this is a man as a teenager who is attracted to uh this you know separatist religious cult called the nation of islam bears very little relationship to actual mainstream islam but it provides him with a kind of um foundation and a way to understand the world that despite its many flaws and and his many flaws that we enumerate in the film are going to give him this way of relating to the world that makes him sui generis he is not just sports illustrated but time and newsweek named him the athlete of a century I I think he may be the greatest athlete of all time. I think if Michelangelo was around today and about to sculpt David, he'd go, "Mm, maybe I should do Muhammad Ali, just a beautiful human specimen who's also funny, who's gregarious, who's difficult, who's you know passionate about life, and is an inspiration to this day uh, for people concerned about social justice. I'd made a film many years ago about Jack Johnson, the first African-American heavyweight champion. Lots of similarities there, and there are connections in both of those films to Muhammad Ali or back to Jack Johnson. But Jack Johnson was for himself. Muhammad Ali died the most beloved person on this planet, and he did so because he was always thinking about other people and what his movement up and out of segregated Jim Crow Louisville meant not just for him, but for his people and indeed for anybody who felt um, lesser than. And so it's just a marvelous story and, and you kind of get to fall in love with him all over again and also be, you know, I think shocked by some of the, the other things that are going on.
2: And one of the things that struck me, Ken, is that it takes a great deal of courage to be a professional boxer. That goes without saying. But if that, And if that were the only dimension of courage in Muhammad Ali's life, seeing that he was a three-time undisputed heavyweight champion, that would cover the bases. He's a courageous person. But in so many other ways, he was singularly courage, courageous for his time, for his people, and for this cause you mentioned.
3: Um. My goodness, what a what a wonderful way to set it up! Um, he intersects with all of the issues of the last half of the twentieth century. You know, he's it's the role of sports in society. It's the role of black athletes in sports. It's the na- nature of black masculinity and manhood. It's about civil rights movement not as a monolithic one thing but as many different tugs and pulls of of various factions and, and interests it's about politics it's about war it's about sex it's about faith it's about um religion it's about islam it's about all these things and all these things that we're dealing with today so it makes him resonate in this particular moment but at the end, th- those are all just themes and there's gonna be no test next Tuesday on them. Um, th- th- by then we'll be in- into the third episode and uh, you'll realize you don't, there's no test. It's, it, but what, what it does is it suggests that this is, to answer your question, that this is a story about freedom. Um, that's the American story, but it's particularly hard for a black man to escape the specific gravity of the conditions of being a black person in America Ever since 1619 to today, as the as the comedian um, uh, Chris Rock says, who's a multi he says, I'm a multimillionaire, but none of you would change places with me for a second, because we know that going to the convenience store or jogging in another neighborhood might actually get you killed something that you and I major because of the the pigmentation of our skin don't ever have to think about except in covid you know so that's but not, why but not
2: once straight right? up not once but not once, never right? crossed but my mind is,
3: but this is a, a, you know a history even after emancipation of a million indignities in a lifetime and i'm not exaggerating that's not hyperbole a million indignities and so this is a story about freedom of a person who got out and was not Content to just continue on his way, but to look back and see whose hand he could help, as I've suggested in my previous answer. This is a thing about courage, because in addition to how difficult it is to be a boxer, this naked, brutal sport, for some reason called the sweet science, um, he's also he, he refuses induction because of his faith in the United States Army. And because he's a black man in the middle of the 60s, people assume he's giving the middle finger to the United States that it's a political choice. So they throw the book at him and he's, you know, convicted and the prosecutors recommend a a modest sentence and the judge gives him the maximum sentence five years. Right. And so he says, you know, I'm not going to go i i i i would stand before machine gun fire today rather than abandon my faith so for him it's a faith decision and it takes a long time for america to catch up with it that's an extraordinary amount of courage and then later as he's imprisoned in one way by parkinson's disease silenced and you know the body encased in the tremors and that he also is liberated in a way to become this worldwide beloved's figure that he's already started to do during his boxing career. So it's an amazing story. And then at the end, it is about the third thing it's about is a four letter word major that you and I, the FCC permits you and I to say, but what we have a terribly difficult time talking about, which is love. He is an apostle of love. And that is, um, you know, an amazing thing.
2: That is the voice of Ken Burns, our very special guest this week on The Takeout. More with Ken Burns on the other side of this break. I'm Major Garrett, segment two, coming up in just one second.
1: This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. From CBS News, this is The Takeout
2: with Major Garrett. Welcome back. For those of you watching on CBSN, great to have you with us. Hope you love what i done with the place here, the Grand Hyatt in Sacramento exquisite producer, all-time hero of the show, Arden Fari. He's in charge of all the interior decorating here in Sacramento. I think he's done a lovely job. Ken Burns is our special guest. Uh, Ken, thanks for indulging me with that little bit of a comic interlude. So the topic is Muhammad Ali. It's your four-part documentary film, You and Your Team. And I want, because we referred to it before we went to break, because some of my audience are on the younger end of the spectrum. We're so happy about that. They may not understand what conscientious objector meant, How volatile that was at the period of time that Muhammad Ali asserted it, the country was still largely in favor of the war in Vietnam, it would change its mind about that, but when Muhammad Ali struck this move, not a pose, but a move, it was challenged, as you said, legally, it went all the way to the Supreme Court, and it derailed his professional career for the better part of three years.
3: There is a proud and honorable tradition of people having religious conscientious objections to fighting the pacifists. Uh, Abraham Lincoln granted it to the Shakers, the celibate uh, religious sect, uh, saying, I wish I had regiments of men such as you, but granted them, making them the official first conscientious objector status. And in all wars... Interestingly enough, the mentor of Muhammad Ali, one of his mentors at the Nation of Islam, Malcolm X being the principal one, but the head of it, Elijah Muhammad, had gone to jail in World War II rather than fight, and because they didn't believe this was religious grounds before. But this was an unpopular war, not at that time. When he said no, more than 60% of the United States supported the involvement in the Vietnam War. So he was looked at as an ingrade, someone who had risen to the height of his profession and wasn't willing to do the sacrifices that families across the country. And he was trying to explain, this is against my religious beliefs. So it does, as you say, take him out at the prime of his career. He is the greatest boxer of all time, and he is at that point where he is just demolishing every point. Their works of art, as one of our boxing advisors, Michael Ben says, their Picassos, their Baryshnikovs, their Miles Davis uh, performances, and they're great. And uh, he's taken out of that. Loses his license, and then he's got the threat of jail. Goes all the way to the Supreme Court, and it's expected that they're going to uphold his conviction uh, that a lower uh, appeals court said. And then some of the clerks dig up a con. Uh, uh, it's pretty interesting, so I don't want to ruin it for people. But they they dig up a uh, you know a kind of um, exception. And so they release him from that. And the interesting thing to me, one of my favorite points of the film is you know, this is a guy who's voluble, who's reciting poetry, he's bragging, he's dancing, he's saying, I told you so, I'm the man, I'm greater than this, I'm there. And he had that opportunity to gloat when he was, you know, essentially released from his prison sentence and could return to boxing, essentially. But he doesn't. And somebody shoves a mic in his face and says, "You know, what do you think about the system?" And he says, "Well, I don't know who's going to be assassinated tonight. I don't know who's going to be enslaved. I don't know who's going to be denied justice or equality." And and you know, he's going back across the 350 years of the treatment of Black people on our continent, back to 1619. He's thinking about Emmett Till, the mutilated body of Emmett Till that his mother had the courage to have an open casket. Who was not much older than him when he was brutally uh, murdered and and tortured. And he's thinking ahead to people that we are going to hear about in history that none of us know at that time. Um, And that's, you know, a Rodney King, a Trayvon Martin, a Tamir Rice, an 11 year old kid in Cleveland, a Breonna Taylor from Louisville, and, of course, George Floyd. And, and I'm sorry to say thousands of other people whose names have been gone past us. And I just love that about that heroism of him, that he was able to understand, even in a moment of triumph, that it wasn't about him.
2: And, Ken, you said something there that leads me to my next question, the names that we have heard that you just mentioned. Muhammad Ali had two names, and in his career, one was chosen as the preferred name by some who liked him and who disliked him. They used the name both to praise him and to criticize him and humiliate him. Walk my audience through that cuz again they may not know who was this Muhammad. What do you mean what do you mean another name? I've only known him as Muhammad Ali.
3: It's so interesting and so utterly American. He is born Cassius Marcellus Clay Jr., his father's name. Cassius Marcellus Clay was the name of a 19th century abolitionist, but it is still in his mind the name given to him by white people and so when he joins the nation of islam and there's a vague power struggle between uh, malcolm x who is charismatic and very political and elijah muhammad who it wants to be separatist and not sort of make news in that political arena and and malcolm x is getting all the attention in the country and so he's expelled from the nation of islam and he's one of uh, a catch- clay's friends and he's also his teacher and they tell him to stay away from malcolm x and he does and the reward is he's given this name uh muhammad ali and it is a, a high honorific and of course everyone or most people i believe know the story that the nation of islam goes on very shortly to assassinate to murder uh, malcolm x and um and it's something that 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 Muhammad Ali will regret for the rest of his life. Um, but it's interesting uh, as he announces the name change; nobody will accept it. Everybody's calling him. He, his opponents, other black fighters, are calling him Cassius Clay and mocking him. And reporters, Howard Cosell, initially refuses to call him uh, the great uh, boxing announcer. Re, uh, refuses to call him that. And then people, some people, gradually change. But he has a series of fights in which he's actually, you know yelling in the ring say my name what's my name what's my name our whole entire second episode is called what's my name because it, identity is central to all of us major ken you know i mean and people are not calling him what he has said please call me that you know Rob, bob dylan is born robert zimmerman you know uh people change their names this is what happens and uh, they wouldn't accept it because it's a black man sort of doing that. So they, they, it, it, he's vilified. And even when he's been Muhammad Ali for years, the newspapers are calling him Clay. When he's, when he's convicted uh, in, a, in a court in Houston for, for refusing induction, the headline says Clay. Right. Nobody says Muhammad Ali.
2: And part of the film is the way in which so many currents in America flowing over Muhammad Ali's life, he chose to disrupt and one of the things i felt to me as i was watching the film on this whole question about his name was it was a stand-in for things that made people uncomfortable about muhammad ali generally which is he was famous he was brash he spoke up for himself he made a lot of money he was incredibly successful there was as you mentioned not only this incredible fluidity and grace but a great lethality to his boxing at his prime he was scary He was a scary, scary person, and in our history rich, large, a wealthy, scary black man got to a nerve in America, got deep in a nerve of America.
3: I use a baseball metaphor. You're very right. That was a very astute observation. I I, I say it's using the baseball idea, you know. He um, is brash, as you say, and and bragging, and he's not behaving the way an athlete, but particularly a black athlete, should uh, behave. Strike one. He joins the Nation of Islam and takes a new name, a Muslim name. Strike two. He refuses induction into the United States Army, strike three. So whatever the motivations might be for the second two, which are all faith-based and sincere, despite the undertow and the difficulties of trying to come to terms with the nation of Islam and some of its things and its corruptions that bothered Malcolm X as well, which is one of the reasons that got him killed. Um, he's, he's not taken on face value about that. As I said, it's just treated as a political middle finger to the U S and he's scary. And so what you do with scary people just back in, as they did to Jack Johnson, when they couldn't beat him, when every great white hope came up to try to beat Jack Johnson, he beat them. So when they couldn't beat him in the ring, they took him to court and sued him over his personal life, right? They brought him up on the man act and, you know, things that senators were doing as W.E.B. Du Bois pointed out, not just other boxers and baseball players but senators were doing the same sorts of things but they were getting away with it and they weren't going to permit jack johnson's who was basically convicted and he left the country and and essentially when he finally came back to fight in the in Havana, many years later overweight and aged you know he lost and it was like let's not have another black person and when they did joe lewis he had to be light-skinned he couldn't be photographed with a white woman and he couldn't seem to be pleased or happy at his victories over a white opponent. And if those conditions could be met and Joe Luce did, then he was fine.
2: And Ken, we're going to go to break now. On the other side of this break, I want to talk about another dimension of Muhammad Ali, which is the counterweight that he saw to the Jack Johnson experience, which was using the media in ways that no person in America had seen a successful black man use before. I'm Major Garrett. Ken Burns is our special guest. Stay tuned for segment three of The Takeout in just one second. Get 80% off your impression
0: kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com.
2: Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: From CBS News, this is The Takeout
2: with Major Garrett. Ladies and gentlemen, you know I love this show because I get to talk to some of the most fascinating people in America. That is absolutely, positively, one billion percent true this week, Ken Burns is with us. Ken, before we went to break, I I gave you a setup and it's really important for people to understand this. The media that we know now is not the media we knew in the 1960s. Television was this primal force in the world. No longer were people learning about information through the radio or through newspapers solely. There was this new other artifact that brought pictures and passion and facial expressions and a way of interpreting someone's attitudes, soul, passion, whatever, instantaneously. And it became, it seems to me, watching your brilliant film on Muhammad Ali's life, one of the essential tools that he understood possibly better than anyone else, at least in the athletic realm and maybe everywhere.
3: I I agree completely and it's a good way to say that. You know, from a, a little kid at one he was banging pots and pans in the living in the in the kitchen and and announcing himself. He was, you know, wearing a purse and putting on lipstick in high school this is in the in the, in the late 40s and 50s. Nobody does that, you know. Um this is this is you know, he's a jokester. He gets he it. Had a
2: theat- he he was theatrical in he many was ways. Theatrical, and comfortably so. so.
3: So it intersects with exactly what you're talking about, the sea change in media, but so different from today where everything is diffused, right? Everything we got, 10 million internet places we could be at. We have a thousand cable channels, but it used to be for you and me growing up, there were three channels, the three networks. You had an independent station and you had an educational station, maybe. And that was it so everything was confined what you read in your newspaper or what you heard on the radio and the tv set was a limited thing and, it, and in essence we all understood things together so mix that in with a guy who's got just an innate sense of promotion a joie de vivre and a love of life that is so palpable that every he goes to the rome olympics and the russians love him you know he's just <laughs> he's just he's flirting with room and he takes it to his thing he, he sees david remnick the editor of the new yorker who's an early biographer a biographer of the early years of Cassius clay and muhammad ali describes him in a las vegas fight where beforehand he goes and he sees a wrestler named gorgeous george who's the enemy who's the guy that everybody likes to to uh criticize and he's perfumed and he's preening and he's doing all the kinds of things that muhammad ali will do in a different way and and he understands a fundamental thing just talk about me you don't have to like me he says boo his throw peanuts but whatever you do Pay to get in, and he appears because there's always worries that the mob is involved in boxing in Albany in a New York State commission, and you know he's got them in stitches. But he's also promised them to sell, that he's going to sell out Madison Square Garden for his next fight, which hasn't happened. On the way down to New York City from Albany, somebody tells him there's a newspaper strike. In those days, New York had like ten newspapers. Nobody, no, nothing's getting. He fills Madison Square Garden with shoe leather, with moxie, with television appearances, with knocking on doors. And that's the way he is. He appeared to us. And I remember this as a kid. He was both uh, like it was like a, a phenomenal, like a hurricane. And, and he was funny. And he was not the way any black person you knew anywhere was behaving. At all. And so that was terrifying for a good deal of America. And then, of course, when he takes these other stands, it becomes even scarier and and something has to be done with him. But you cannot underestimate. He had promoters, you know, Don King later on, Bob Arum, people who were good at, at, at what they did nobody was as good at promoting as he was and he knew just the right word to say how to get under his opponent's skin how to frame every single fight as a kind of drama with him as the the lead I, every you know so I, when I said every fight the fights were like the collected works of William Shakespeare he made himself the lead character he made himself Hamlet or Macbeth or whatever you know King Lear in whatever of the fights he did and he did it with a genius that we just still shake our heads at nobody can do that today nobody understands that.
2: Ken, one of the great subtleties of this four-part documentary is how this was a conversation within the Black community that was at times confounding to the Black community itself. And I think there's always a great risk for you or for me or anyone who is white in America to try to do the scientific dissection of the Black community conversation. We don't know anything about it, okay? We just don't, flat out. But the, the, the documentary gets to many of these subtleties. There were, as you mentioned earlier, African-American boxers who did not like, did not appreciate, and thought there was something dangerous and flat-out wrong about Muhammad Ali's approach to all of these things. And there were these tensions within the civil rights movement, Malcolm X, Dr. Martin Luther King. It wasn't just one dialogue. It was a multi-layered dialogue, and you relied on so many different voices, non-white voices, to tell that part of the story. How did you approach that?
3: Well, I, I think, you know, as a white person, we, Sarah, Dave, and I, white people had to shut up and listen. You know, I mean, this is part of any investigation is not to just to impose your thoughts. And of course, one of the most subtly racist things is assume that they all think alike. Already, you've just, boom, did yourself into just the worst possible corner. You know, it, it it's it's a it's a pernicious fact that that uh, Dr. King said. You know, we do not judge people on the content of their character; we judge them on the color of their skin, and that the biases are so interwoven into our lives. So this is populated with scholars, African American scholars like Gerald Early and uh, Todd Boyd and Sherman Jackson, the poets like Wole Selinka and Quincy. Troupe and, uh, Nikki Giovanni. It's by. You know his brother it's about people in the nation of Islam and other other journalists who covered him they're white reporters too Great. who are watching him and they give you a, a pretty interesting take they're now old men but they were cub reporters like Robert Lipsight and Dave Kindred and Jerry Eisenberg among the very best and biographers like Jonathan Eig and uh, David Remnick uh, but but mostly it's the people who knew him and understood him and then part of the shutting up and listening is going into the archive this is a man and, you know we have a, a four part eight hour film we had 400 hours of material of him talking and a lot of times other films have just been able to pick the ones that serve the topic of what that fight was or what that controversy was we had the luxury of being able to listen to this kid the wisdom in addition to the bravado coming out of this kid the thoughtfulness and the love that was coming out of a 22 year old at the same time he's rhyming and making hilarious jokes you know that I can drown a drink of water and kill a dead tree. But at the heart of it is a kind of respect for the fact that each and every one of us is a child of God. Each and every one of us is an individual person. So the civil rights movement has as many sort of views as there are people involved in it, or even people reacting to it in some way. And so we, in this story, it touches on many of those dynamics. And it's not uh, it's not something that's fixed. It's fluid, just like his faith is fluid and and be, grows more and more expansive. So too, northern whites are more. I mean, more, northern blacks are more impatient with the pace of the nonviolent southern, you know, uh, turn the other cheek Christian civil rights movement than are the southern Democrats who are steeped in a. Christian tradition of turning the other cheek. This is what the example of their savior did, you know, and, and the urban reality has delivered a new thing. The new times has delivered something. So you have a man saying, I'm black and I'm beautiful. And people have not heard that before. And it's speaking to people, not just in the United States, it's speaking to people all over the world, particularly as they learn of his mother and face, who feel like they have been oppressed anywhere. And and there is for many other people in the white community, we always say, well, white people didn't like him, and some black people didn't. There were a lot of white people who loved him. I mean, my family, we were against the Vietnam War. We lived on a college campus. My father was in the anthropology department that led the first of the teachings, not at Berkeley, but at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, when he said, I'm against the war and I don't want to go, we just thought that made him even greater uh, than what he was. So we have to understand, we can look back and say how divisive he was in the face of his dying, the most beloved person on the planet, but we also have to understand just how complicated we are. And a lot of times we think it's Muhammad Ali that did the changing, it's us. We had to grow up. We had to suddenly realize After the Supreme Court, maybe he was right, and we were wrong.
2: And I'm going to set you up again for segment four, Ken, because one of the things that it seems to me is true of this documentary about Muhammad Ali, one of the things you can say is, and yet, because there were dark sides to Muhammad Ali, there were cruelties to Muhammad Ali, and we're going to talk about those in segment four, particularly as they relate to the great Joe Frazier. I'm Major Garrett. Ken Burns is our special guest. Stay tuned for segment four in just one moment.
0: From CBS News, this is The Takeout
2: with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Our guest, the great Ken Burns, his film with his team, Muhammad Ali, a four-part documentary. So Muhammad Ali, for those who don't know or remember, fought Joe Frazier three times, defeated him twice, lost to him once. Some of the most epic fights in Muhammad Ali's career and certainly Joe Frazier's career. David Remnick in the documentary describes the arc of Muhammad Ali's life as Homeric, Well, a big part of that Homeric arc is built around Joe Frazier. And as I suggested before we went to break, there is a decidedly cruel, heartless belligerence from Muhammad Ali about Joe Frazier. I think it's one of the worst parts of his public or private career. Ken, tell my audience a little bit about that.
3: Yeah, he uses, as the scholar Todd Boyd says in our film, an African-American scholar from the University of Southern California, he said that he used the the language that a white racist would use against Joe Frazier. Really belittling stuff, you know, pressing his nose down, ears out, saying he's dumb, the, mimicking the way he talked. It was really insulting. Having his
2: sparring partners wear a gorilla mask.
3: A, gr- a gorilla mask. I mean, it's really about as low as you can get. And there's a moment where Todd stops at this and says you know, it's just confounding because here's the ultimate conscious black guy doing this. And and and, he, and then he stops and he says something key, he says, I just think in this instance, he used his powers for evil instead of good. And it, that's the, what I understood it. We live in a media culture that we think would have dimension, that it would have understanding. It doesn't, it's so superficial right now. We pr- We lament that there are no heroes because we presume that heroes are perfect and if we find any imperfection we throw them out but in fact the greeks have been telling us for millennia that a hero isn't perfect the hero is in fact what defines heroism is a negotiation sometimes a war between that person's great strengths and their weaknesses and so achilles had his heel and his hubris to go along with his great strength so too with muhammad ali this is a larger than life life, so everything about him is bigger, and the flaws are great and one of the great flaws is how he treated his opponents, often belittling them saying they're the 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 uh favorite of white america um it, it it's it's not pretty to watch up, but you know what I don't care this is the true story this is what it is and he's Unfaithful to at least three of his four wives, he's also abandoned Malcolm X. All of which he tries to atone to as, in his life process, he grows up. He apologizes to Joe Frazier lay, later. Uh, Joe Frazier's been so hurt by that he he doesn't ref, he refuses it. Um, he laments at he had cut Malcolm X off because, in fact, his his vision of Islam. Is already what Malcolm X has learned and what the nation of Islam will briefly be after the death of Elijah Muhammad and his son Wallace takes over, much more ecumenical, you know, welcoming, more like Islam itself. Uh, and so it's a very interesting journey that he takes. But as a filmmaker, uh, Sarah Burns and David McMahon and I, we are not interested in sugarcoating this. It doesn't do anything. In fact, it actually makes his greatness in prouder relief if we've lifted up the carpet and swept out some of the dirt you know the sugar coating the madison avenue sanitizing of our history gets us nowhere You know, I mean, I can't believe that Texas is trying to change how they see history to sort of control how it is because their religion in Texas is football. And on Friday night, the high school coach comes out and says, we sucked. We were bad on defense. We were bad on offense. We were bad on special teams. We got to get better. And on Saturday afternoon, the college coach says the same thing. You want the unvarnished truth in order to grow and be better. So why can't in the teaching of history, we be honest about all these things? Is he a great man? Yes. He is one of the greatest Americans. of all time i'm i'm taking it out of the sports arena this man dies the most beloved person on his planet did he have flaws yes and they were big and they were glaring and our film does not ignore
2: them two things before we go we've got about four minutes to go ken before i have to wrap up at least the radio segment of this show but two things one for those of my audience who may not have an appreciation for it communicate to them how big a sport boxing was in America when Ali was at the top of that sport? And secondly, how much did that contribute to his Parkinson's and his fragile, tragic decline later in his life?
3: Yeah. Um, so from the 1880s on, the heavyweight champion of the world was was an important thing. So important that when uh, the sex- Sequence of white men lost to a black man, Jack Johnson, that couldn't stand. But everybody knew who it was. And it's a very interesting thing. As I'm interviewed uh, for this film, I asked the sports writers, who's the heavyweight champion? And none of them can name them. And I don't know. And I don't care because after Muhammad Ali, you don't care. It's a brutal sport. And there's nothing fun about watching it unless there's artistry and all of these other intersections of the themes that we've been talking about today, Major. Major but you know maybe mike tyson a little bit but that's more because he bit somebody's ear and there's more a kind of the the bad boy with muhammad i guess you don't need to know after that it's it's interesting it still goes on but up until him and through him this was as big a sport as anything we had and even people who didn't like it knew who the champion was and that's an important thing now when he comes back from his exile of three and a half years in which he's uh, lost you know the ability to fight during the height of his powers he begins to alter his style he's not as fast as he once was he doesn't can't dance for as long and so he adapts some strategy and one of them his fight dr freddie projecta said was both very bad and very good the very good was he learned how to take a punch the very bad was He learned how to take a punch and he took thousands of punches. And we believe that that kind of neurological damage, just as we debate even today, the article in the New York times today about whether we should watch football because it promotes the kinds of CTE concussions that cause dementia, that causes suicide, depression, uh, early death, all of that sort of stuff is very common. And so he emerges in the early eighties with clearly Slowed speech and the beginnings of a tremor. Some of the people that we interviewed noticed the first tremors after hard workout. And for the last, essentially, three decades or more of his life, uh, Parkinson's really is dominating his life. And it's interesting, though, as sad as that now sounds to say, it's when he begins to, I mean, he already, by the time he beat George Foreman in, in Kinshasa in the Rumble in the Jungle, it's it's just you can't make this stuff up. There's no Hollywood director or uh, producer that would go ahead with this story. He's begun to become not just the greatest boxer, but the greatest and the most beloved person on his planet. And, and, and in a way, the film wants to look at, unflinchingly, the kind of person he became afterwards. You know, Michael J. Fox said, who is, suffers from Parkinson's, I couldn't be still until I couldn't be still. It's a beautiful comment. And in a way, this most valuable of talkers, uh, who we love to hear talk, he could could speak even louder and farther when he couldn't talk. And so when he he held a press conference in the 60s or 70s, most of the sports world stopped. When he couldn't talk and he visited Pakistan or Malaysia or Saudi Arabia in the 80s or 90s or aughts, the whole country stopped.
2: Precisely. Ken Burns mentioned the George Foreman fight. It's astonishing, and it only explains how much there is to talk about and how little time we have, that we didn't even get to a deep discussion about George Foreman. Watch the film to get a feel for it, ladies and gentlemen. For our radio audience, we have to bid you farewell. For those on CBSN and on our podcast platform, stay tuned for the Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. It's been Ken Burns. We'll see you next week.
3: Man, that sunset is gorgeous.
0: CBS News. This
1: is The Takeout
2: with Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett coming to you from the Grand Hyatt Hotel in Sacramento, California. Yes, I'm on the West Coast, but I'm here coming the California Recall. A little sleep deprived, but so delighted to have our incredibly special guest, Ken Burns, documentary filmmaker. Ken, you have this four part documentary on Muhammad Ali. And this is kind of an inside baseball thing, but it's fascinating to me because I am such an enormous fan. I am reverentially addicted to the way you treated baseball, the Civil War, jazz, country music. And many of those endeavors required you to live in the world of still photography. Muhammad Ali is not your only subject where there's a great deal of film. The Vietnam War, there's a tremendous amount of film. But I wonder, again, inside baseball, is it harder when you have so much to plow through that is moving pictures and recorded or easier?
3: Smart guy. Um, There's a tyranny of choice, just as there is a tyranny of no choice. But let me just back up and say, I originally, I knew I wanted to be a filmmaker at age 12. My mom had just died. I'd never seen my dad cry, but he was watching a movie and he cried and I got it. You know, this provided an emotional safe haven to him. I said, I want to do that. But that meant a feature filmmaker. I went to Hampshire College in Amherst, Massachusetts, and all my teachers were social documentary still photographers. My dad had been an amateur still photographer. So the still photograph is the DNA of what I do. A single still photograph, which I'm trying to wake up trust that it had a past and would have a future so i'm not i'm listening to it are the cannon firing are the troops tramping is the bat cracking i'm trying to wake up that photograph and i'm taking the techniques of a feature filmmaker that is take a still photograph and treat it as a as a master shot that has a wide shot that has a medium shot that has a close-up that has a tilt has a pan has a reveal and insert of details and that is helping with this oral soundtrack to wake up that photograph. So I am particularly comfortable. And if you look at those ones, those films like World War II, the war, or the Vietnam War, or country music, or whatever it is, where we have the option of doing footage for what we're talking about in our intro, it is always still photographs. We didn't have that option in Civil War, of course, uh, to, ha- to go to footage, but we, we resort to still photographs because it is the DNA of conviction. I mean, if you've got footage of Babe Ruth rounding the bases, you can talk about Babe Ruth rounding the bases. But if you have a portrait of Babe Ruth, You can talk about him rounding the bases, and you can imagine that in your mind. You can also talk about his unhappy childhood on the wharf of Baltimore. You can also talk about his relationship with women, with his father. You can talk about his relationship to his teammates. It's a tabla rasa in which we are totally comfortable. Now I've even done many subjects, and I've just finished a film on Benjamin Franklin, which there are no photographs or or whatever. So what are you gonna do there? Live cinematography, interviews, paintings, maps, all of that has to substitute. projects i have going on is a history of the american revolution nothing no footage nothing we're gonna have to will this alive in a new way but that's the challenge every film is a million problems but if you don't if you see them pejoratively you're lost but if you see them as something friction to overcome they just become irritations like in an oyster that eventually become a pearl and you hope and and we trust that that when the films are done they're pearls
2: Uh, nothing but pearls that is the assessment from this humble voice so Ken this show is uh, going into its fifth year well into its fifth year congratulations and we thank you so much and we ask everyone who appears on the show three threshold questions because our audience loves the answers so take these questions in whatever order you prefer most influential book in your life or one of them Uh, all-time favorite movie or one of your favorite movies and if you're going to indulge yourself musically I mean really get into something what kind of music artist or genre are you most likely to listen to?
3: I think a hundred years of solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez is the f- best American novel. People say, wait, that's not American. You know, yes, it is. <laughs> and there's a lot of the continent, the, a lot of this globe that's called America. Right. Um, I think *The Seventh Samurai* by Akira Kurosawa, which is a little bit over three hours, is is nothing has ever been made that's better than that. It just is thrilling to me. Those three hours and twelve minutes, whatever it is, go by like a, like I'm snapping my finger. And um, what's the third question? Music. Oh my God! You know, I, I've I've immersed myself in jazz and country music. I also am a child of the nineteen sixties, and mm-hmm. you know. I can put on Louis Armstrong and it can make me feel better. I can listen to Merle Haggard or or Johnny Cash. I still miss someone. It can make me feel better, but you know, at the end of the day, there's a great shot in Muhammad Ali, of uh, he's training for the Liston fight, and these four guys from Britain come up into his room, up into the training center, the Fifth Street Gym, and he fake punches, and John Paul George and Ringo are tilting over in a fake, made up publicity (laughs) thing. But all all five of those men, three of whom are dead. Uh, understood a fundamental thing of how the universe works. And John Lennon said, love is all you need. And I think though I'd go to Paul McCartney, who's still alive and take a sentence that he wrote, which is I think the finest lyric in all of rock and roll, at least, which is, and in the end, the love you take is equal to the love you make.
2: That is the voice of Ken Burns. It has been a great, I would dare say, monumental privilege of mine to share this hour with you. Ken, it's been a pleasure. Congratulations on the documentary. Hope to see you down the road sometime soon.
3: Can't wait, Amir. Thanks so very much. It's really great. Thank you, Major. Thanks.
2: thanks. We'll see you next week, folks. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Jake Rosen, and Ashley Armstrong. CBSN production by Eric Susanan. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at
1: Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News.
2: If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey.